I'm Gene, and this is Perfect Flow. I'm a New Zealand-based athlete and coach focused on optimizing performance, health, and well-being. While I have a professional background in biomedical engineering, I've chosen to follow my more immediate passions for running, endurance, adventure, movement, nutrition, lifestyle, community, psychology, and personal growth. My goal in starting this podcast is to connect with bright minds to extract the information I need to live a life that makes sense and feels good, and share those conversations with others. Apart from your favorite podcast app, the best places to follow my work are perfectflow.nz, genebeverage.nz, and perfectflow on Facebook. Hey, welcome back to Perfect Flow. Today I'm talking with British psychotherapist William Pullen. William is a psychotherapist who has developed this interesting concept called Empathy Runs, and he has an app called Dynamic Running Therapy. So this concept is around not just letting psychotherapy take place in, in you know, a, a counselor's room, but outside in an outdoor environment with movement and running, possibly. Really what the client client wants, they can, they can lead the way. And this has some really interesting effects and implications that we go into in this conversation. The general areas that we cover are William's background and experience of depression. And then we get into CBT versus existential psychotherapy. And I'll go into what that means in a, in a second. We explore the relationship between running and mental health and how William's clients find uh, a lot of utility there. Vulnerability versus collaboration and what are the roles of uh, the client and, and the patient and what does productive therapy typically look like. The awareness of feelings in therapy. Modeling for the client, which again is more of a roles in therapy, which I find really interesting. And what William sees moving forward for this uh, running in therapy, these empathy runs. So getting back to CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy versus existential psychotherapy. I'll just go over the basics of these two different ways of conducting therapy and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Uh, they are kind of complementary in some way, but a therapist will focus on conducting the therapy in one way over another way. And I think there's a few different ways that you can describe the difference. Um, I'm going to tackle it from the way that uh, makes the most sense to me. So cognitive behavioral therapy to me is where you're thinking through and learning from past experience and experimenting as well with how you as a personality interact with the environments you find yourself in and with the people you find yourself interacting with and noticing how your mood and experience and personality change as a response to other things in your environment and also in response to your thoughts so the way you frame things and it requires a lot of back and forward between um, the therapist and the client as you would expect but that back and forward is really about finding some way to describe and understand in a very cognitive sense what is going on and then you come up with ways to intervene so what 
if you reframe a certain scenario in a different way or you have a different response to uh, something else that happens in your environment what cause and effect then follows and is that a better outcome than whatever your default reaction to a kind of situation is and so that is contrasted with psychotherapy which is more what William practices and you could describe this approach as tackling therapy from a deeper more fundamental level of understanding uh, deeper emotions that you experience and how you come to value some things over others and why you value things and really getting that that baseline straight so that when you make conclusions about what kind of emotional experiences you actually want and why you resist some emotional experiences more than others then you know that you're coming from a stronger foundation you could also describe this as more of a feelings-based approach to psychotherapy so instead of asking a about how you respond in certain situations you're th- asking about why you value certain situations over others and why you value certain emotions over others and by answering those questions I think you get uh, a deeper insight into the meaning of life and purpose and freedom responsibility uh, all these kind of high level concepts that we all grapple with and this is this approach to therapy deals with those first and then you kind of move on towards um, changing your um, mindset and hopefully your your mental state around certain situations. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with William Pullen. Hi William, thank, thank you for coming on Perfect Flow. Been pleasure. So can we jump back a little bit and talk about you, what you studied and then we'll bring it up to what your currently work is, what your current work is. You mean what I studied uh, to, in terms of the career I have now, or do you mean going all the way back? Yeah, 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 we'll keep it relevant to the um, psychotherapy. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, so I'm a, I'm a running psychotherapist, uh, the only one in the world that does the kind of psychotherapy I do, it's called Dynamic Running Therapy, which I wrote a book about. Um, there are a few other running psychotherapists out there um, doing their own versions. Uh, but yeah, no, at 39, I'm 53 now. At 39, I had a sort of meltdown um, and, uh, and went into therapy like a lot of therapists. We starts in crisis. And to answer your question, it was then that I decided to train to be a therapist. And um, I took a master's and did all the rest of the stuff that you have to do. It takes a long time, actually, about six years, seven years. Yeah, that's interesting that it's motivated by uh, personal, solving a personal problem. And uh, I've had friends as well who have had problems with with mental health and um, the the interest in in psychology before and after that experience has increased a lot. Um, I haven't had a friend decide to uh, commit to studying and pursuing a job yet, but they're getting close. So yeah, you're not the only one who has been pulled in by trying to solve a personal problem. Yeah, I would say, I would say in terms of the therapists, I know it's the majority of us have gone that route, gone through the drama. They call us the wounded healers. I mean, most therapists I know are mad, um, but you know, they know they're mad. Uh, they, they understand that everyone's mad, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, is that a really important part of the job, actually having a, a very sincere empathy for the patient because you've been there? Well, one hopes so, yeah. <laughs> Without empathy, you're not going to be a great therapist. But yes, I mean, an understanding of your own drama, your own contradictions, your own darkness, your own fallibility. And then, of course, you have to train to be a therapist. And part of that means going into therapy yourself. But typically, that's several years of very deep um, introspection. And at the end of it, you know every dark nook and cranny that you possess in your mind and body. It's, it's a tough journey. Yeah. So I think you can have compassion towards uh, a, a client. And then there's uh, some extra level you can have when you've actually been there and you don't, you can't just list in an academic sense, the challenges that they're facing and the best strategies to deal with it. But you have a, a deeper level of understanding that uh, it might be harder to put words on, but would give you some, some nuance that may probably harder to, to study. Yeah, I think that's better to say. Uh, it's definitely an important part of it. Knowing, it, yes, it makes you much less judgmental as well. You, it makes it much harder to be shocked. You understand how quickly people go, go from hero to zero. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So what was your uh, experience triggered by? While I was in, I mean, to me it all goes back to childhood stuff as it does for so mm. many. But ultimately what triggered it was a, was a love affair with a woman from another country, another faith. She was much younger than me. And um, all of our differences in the end sort of tore us apart, but not before, you know, I'd given it my all. And mm. um, and I, I found myself sort of very broken hearted, uh, which drifted into depression. And, you know, I, it, it was a, it, it tailed all the way back to sort of childhood abandonment issues it became a, a sort of a reenactment of, of yeah. drama. That's interesting because being brokenhearted is quite ordinary. I mean, it's not your yeah. everyday experience, but it's common. Um, it's common, but, you know, there are plenty of people for whom it's highly problematic. I mean, yeah. we therapists would be out of business if it, if it, if it <laughs> wasn't for them. You know, a lot of people find it incredibly hard to get over. And, and some people... <clears throat> breakdowns some people to suicide it's uh it's a it's a big deal you know i think it's easier when you're younger it tends to be a little bit easier as you get older it can feel quite um decimating yeah. uh so can i stay i can't remember yeah no. in, in your case could you largely put down your negative experience to that that one issue or was there the compounding challenges facing you at that time well, some of my lifestyle choices, I won't elaborate on them too much, but there's yeah. some of them are fairly unhealthy. And I don't think that helped. Um, but no, I think it was the fact that I that it all tailed back to um, to to childhood stuff, you know. And um, and it all yeah, and I was turning forty and you know, it was a yeah, a li midlife mm -hmm. crisis was a big part of it, I think. Cool, cool. So what kind of uh, clients are you working with at the moment? And can you go through all the, the different types of therapy that you engage in and yeah, elaborate on some of those a, a little bit more? Because for those of us who haven't been uh, 
in into yeah a clinic where they do all these kind of things yeah it's a bit of a black box so if you could so, elaborate you know, a bit yeah say most of the people i see uh, uh, i see for anxiety depression relationship problems mood disorders that sort of thing that those that's the bread and butter um, in terms of the kind of therapy that i offer i'm this is where it gets a little complex. I suppose the world is the most common kind of therapy in the world today is something called cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. It's very behavioral. You Somebody walks in, they say, oh, I'm not very good with people. Uh, for instance, at parties, I, oh, I think I don't have any friends or whatever it is. And then you draw a map and you look for exits and you understand behaviors and then you try and change specific points of behavior and, and, and the whole cycle with any luck will change. Well, that's CBT. The traditional old school therapy, which I'm more that part, although I'm humanistic, which is probably the next biggest piece after CBT, um, but not as big as psychodynamic, uh, but it's bigger than psychodynamic, which is the Freudian. Um, for, for us, it's we came out of sort of, uh, out of California in the 50s, 60s, and and I would say that we're we're much more focused on um, understanding who people are and relating to. It's very important the relationship between the therapist and the client. You're modeling a kind of of, of intimacy that you then hope that they will, uh, and and an acceptance for who they are that you hope that they will then take into themselves and walk out of the room having felt seen and understood and valued. And, and that's often what people don't feel before they come in. So you offer them that. And then in the psychodynamic model, the Freudian model, you're talking about, as you know, repression of, 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 of the sexual instincts and every other kind of instinct it tends to go back to childhood. So, uh, yeah, I am humanistic, person-centered with an ex accent on existential. <laughs> but mm -hmm. don't, I mean, I could spend hours going into what that means. But essentially existential, if you know your 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 Kierkegaard and your and your uh, Sartre etc. Uh, it's all about the uh, the subjectivity of the lived experience. In other words, the world is as I understand it. There is no objective world that everybody else ex uh, understands. There is just the one that each of us. And the great news is that if I am the one, if I'm the author of my life, then the good news is, and this is why the model works, is when you walk into my office and you say, "Well, my life is hell." I can say, well, the good news is it's hell because you believe it's hell and you believe it's hell. And we can just as just as easily make you believe that it's not hell. Yeah, that must be something quite <clears throat> hard for someone to um, explain, though, because they very much believe that the circumstances they're in are being forced from the outside. So um, but just before just before we go there, I wanted you to expand on CBT a little bit more for people who maybe don't quite um, understand it. So um, you mentioned that it's really important to have that uh, intimate relationship between the, the client and, and the therapist. No, that what, was humanistic. That's what I do. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, can you, can you clarify that a little bit? What, the, the work that I do or the CBT? The CBT is a behavioral one with the graphs mm. and it's the most common one today. The one I do is the humanistic, which is about the intimacy. You want to know about that one? Yeah, actually, yeah, I was a bit confused. So if you could um, define the difference between those two. 
A bit later. So one is strictly behavioral, so you're, which is the first one, cognitive mm -hmm. behavioral therapy. So you're looking to understand modes of behavior. You can map them out. You can understand how one thing leads to another, and mm -hmm. then you work out where the best place is to exit or change behaviors. It's like training a monkey or on Pavlov's dogs. Okay. Some traditionalists would say that it doesn't go deep enough and that people mm -hmm. will come back to it, but, but that's one of the old, oldest debates. Um, it certainly seems to work for a lot of people. You know, therapy doesn't work for everybody all the time, every time. Mm -hmm. um, CBT works a lot of the time. What I do works a lot of the time, not all the time. Um, and, and I guess that's the difference. That we are really interested. We put the accent on, on the relationship, whereas they put the accent on behavior change. All right, that's helping me understand CBT through a, quite, through a slightly different light. Um, I've got a, a very brief understanding of it and yeah, I, I am now noticing that there isn't that much interaction on, on the individual. There isn't that much of an emphasis on the individual. Um, and it's very much on <clears throat> kind of the, these cause and effect mechanisms and how you might kind of intervene and kind of to jam a, a wedge in, in the right spot based on what other people have tried in the past. Was that would you say that's about right? People, that's a bit of a relief as well. I would say some people don't really want to go in as deep as you have to in more traditional therapy. It can feel very exposing. Mm. It can feel very anxiety provoking. It's intense. Um, if you go to CBT, I'm not saying it won't be intense. It may well be just as intense, but it doesn't need to be. We can just deal with what it is you're doing, what kind of very specific behavior you want to change. I don't have enough friends. Uh, when I, when I meet people, I do this or whatever it may be. Mm. And we can really just zero in on that behavior and, and try and change that. But mm. um, you know, it is also across all kinds of therapy, what we call the therapeutic alliance, which is the quality of the relationship between the therapist and the client is all important. And that's been shown in research. One of the few things research does show is that if you don't like your therapist, if you don't trust your therapist, um, if he doesn't inspire confidence in you, mm. you've had it. It doesn't matter how good a therapist, mm. he's just not the right guy for you. So don't sit there and suffer through him or her thinking that, you know, this is part of therapy and this is how it goes down. It, it can be. Often we do get very angry with our therapists and that's a good thing to challenge them with. But, uh, but if it's just day to day, it's just a lousy relationship, but, you know, you've, you're probably going to want to get out of them. Mm, yeah, that's a little nugget because I can imagine you saying, oh, I just need to put kind of more trust in what they're doing and let them take the reins and give them a good, honest test. Uh, what you're suggesting is obviously, you know, hear them out for a few sessions, but if your if the relationship itself doesn't seem to be really harmonious and you're starting to resent some of the interactions, then you've just got to keep looking around for the right team. Exactly. It should feel like an alliance. It should feel collaborative. If you feel like you're all alone on the on the other sofa and uh, struggling to keep up, struggling to feel heard, struggling to understand, um, uh, and that lasts long enough, well, then exit. So what are the kind of services that you offer at the moment or the, the kind of sessions that you do with your clients? So just regular open-ended psychotherapy, you know, of, of the kind I just mentioned, humanistic. Um, Therapy sessions are 50 minutes long, once a week typically. Uh, and then I do this thing, dynamic running therapy. Um, 
And that's the same kind of therapy. The difference is it's on the move. I do it in the park, and uh, which adds all sorts of benefits to it, in my opinion. Not for everybody, but for many people. And those are the two I do. Yeah, that's interesting. When did you start doing the running the running sessions? Or was there a predecessor? Some Was there any other physical kind of session, or you went straight to running? Uh, I mean, I've always done a fair bit of sports, not so much right before my sort of meltdown because I was doing other things. But um, uh, no, I, I, I don't. I still don't really know why I took up running. I just knew that it would be good to me. I was so isolated and depressed and home alone. And and I was lucky enough that I, I knew this guy, this American guy called Chris, who I used to play poker with. And um, and I said to him, will you meet me in the park? I've got to get out of my flat. You know, just I knew that fresh air, just, I knew anything getting out of my flat would be good. So I met up with him, and, um, and for some reason, I still don't know why, we started. We decided we would run and try to become runners. I think we knew, we knew it would be good for us. And, um, and then some, I was simultaneously in therapy. And I found myself during these walks talking to him about what was going on in my life, and he was sharing with me what turned out to be the, the breakdown of his marriage. And... Um, yeah, I just, as I said, then I, 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 and we took up running. We still talked while we were running. I still like to talk. I was out running today. I only run with people who like to talk. That's my thing. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it helps me unburden. It distracts me. I find it engaging. Um, and with him, I noticed how, how it seemed to make it easier to talk, even easier than walking. Somehow you're distracted by all the trees flying past you, trying not to walk into that puddle, run into that puddle. You're distracted in various ways, and that takes away that 10% of you that's watching you, watching you, mm. Um, mm. and allows yeah. you to, just, to, just to talk freely. Yeah, we'll get into that. So to clarify, you're not just doing running as a point of difference. You think that you could do more running than what you could achieve on a couch. I'm doing more therapy. Yeah. Yes. Doing, yeah. Yeah. I'm, as as a. Yeah. I believe for some people that 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 by doing it while on the move, and it's very important to 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 point out that uh, it's a 50-minute session, even in the park. But every single of those 50 minutes is, in terms of movement, is decided by the client. So it's not them mm -hmm. trying to keep up with me. It's not physical training. There's no element of that. If they want to sit down, they can sit down. But the idea is just to try and get the blood moving for at least some of the session, maybe all of one session and none of the next. But when you're moving, you have, I believe, various advantages. It's a bit like, I don't know if you've ever heard of, of EMDR and various other sort of body-mind therapies, but what you're really doing is you're layering two sensations on top of each other or, or one sensation on top of a feeling or a memory. Um, so, for instance, let's say I was deeply depressed, which is a, typically a feeling of, of disempowerment and stuckness. If I take you out with me and we go for a run and you start telling me about how stuck you are, but I layer that with, it, with a 10-minute run from, from point A to point B, now you're not just a stuck person on a stuck sofa talking about your stuck problem. Now you're layered in with somebody who actually got somewhere from A to B. And it, and it tricks the mind, tricks the soul into loosening things up. 
you become empowered. You're the person who's actually, you start to notice, well, hang on a second, maybe I'm not as useless as I thought I was. I can run and talk about my feelings. I feel like I'm actually getting into them physically. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm deciding how this goes down. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. From a hyper-rational perspective, you could easily dismiss that. And I think I'd be tempted to say, well, if they only, you know, focused a little bit more and or, or focus less, whatever works for them so that they don't realize that this is just a trick. But if it's a trick and they're really in the moment and that just that does change their experience and their mood while they're well, in the I, session, then that's what you're going for, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not a trick in the sense that we are, you know, we are chimps. We're upright chimps on the move and we're mythological chimps. We have a history, mm -hmm. we have, you know, way before we started sitting down in, in sofas, we, most of our DNA, most of our background, most of our mythology is, is storytelling on the move, hunter-gatherers, etc. We told stories, we were in small bands, and we kept those stories going, and traditions and lessons and morals, all the rest of it. That's how you, that's how we should be communicating. You should never be sitting down <laughs> looking at somebody intensely in the eye and asking them what the hell's going on in their life. It's very, it's very overbearing. Any parent will tell you, if you ever want to get through to your kid, for God's sake, don't look them in the eye. Take them for a walk, put them in the car, get side by side, don't put your beady eye on them, and, and make out like it's not a big deal. You throw in what you need to throw in. Yeah. And you call that a trick or you can call it, you know, uh, working with who we really are. Yeah. Yeah, in, in the right context. Um, I can also imagine in, in those situations, there's, is there some sense of achieving something together as a, as a team, as opposed to you're going out and doing something that's semi-distracting? Which of those two ways of looking at it is, is more true for you? I don't know if either's more true than the other. They're equally true. They're part of the, there are several aspects which I think provide uh, an advantage to some people. And definitely the, the, le the, the lesser confrontational of being side by side. Remember we were talking about the therapeutic alliances, this mm -hmm. sense of collaboration. Well, if I'm sitting across from you in your office, how much are we physically collaborating in that moment? I'm in the chair, everybody sits in, you're in the chair, you sit in. I'm stuck here, you're stuck there, and then I leave. Um, now contrast that with meeting me in the park where every step that you elect to make as my client, I have to follow you and take every step. I'm collaborating with you as much as you're collaborating with me. There's nowhere to hide out here. Uh, even physically, you can see my body and I can see your body. There's no, you know, you mm. can see how, how overweight or underweight I am as I, as, I, as I can I of you. We are much more sort of revealed um, our, our, our ungainliness, uh, the way we run, the way we breathe, whatever it is. We're, I think we're, we feel much more um, exposed, um, but fortunately distracted. Exposed, but distracted. You don't care, um, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Is there some advantage for the client to notice how vulnerable the therapist is? Well, that's interesting. So yeah, you mentioned yeah, just noticing how ungainly you are. Um, often, if you are imagining a therapist as you know someone on their their pedestal, uh, they're at the top of their career, and um, they've 
they're, they're nice enough to spare some yeah. of their precious time for me, then the relationship's quite different to somebody who says, hey, I'm just a human too. And this is something that I deal with from a coaching perspective because you can come over very, very strong uh, if people already know that you've been a top athlete and they're expecting you know, great things from you and maybe they think you train really in a really focused way. So they expect you to be super strict and um, just opening up from the start and just expressing some of your own issues, no matter how trivial breaks the ice in a way that totally changes the dynamic of the relationship to more of a kind of peer to peer uh, feel rather than like a master and learner feel. Yeah. I mean, you, it, well, this is, this is one of the biggest topics in, in psychotherapy. Um, one of the things you learn in your training is that um, telling stories about yourself seldom pays off. Um, even when you've, you know, you think that you've, you know, this is the one time I'm going to do it this year because I'm told never to do it, and, but I'll give it a go because it seems like, you know, this isn't really about me and it's useful and it's really is useful to them. And then you give it a go and they sort of, and their eyes glaze over because um, it's, they're like, I'm paying for these 50 minutes. I didn't come here to hear your stories. We're here to hear my stories. So the collaboration doesn't need to be through sharing stories. I don't need you to know anything about me. And in fact, quite often, the diff highly defended clients start probing. They want to know deeply because they feel uncomfortable. Uh, and as therapists, we're supposed to work with that, um, with those challenges. We don't just give in and go, okay, here's all the family silver. You know, here's all my personal stories. Mm. And now we're both in a mess, a hot mess together. Do you know what I mean? No, you say no. You reflect it back to them. You say, "Look, I noticed that 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 you're asking me a lot of questions. Is um, do you is, is, do you feel that you would feel safer? Do you not feel safe with this imbalance? What do you imagine I'm thinking over here? What you know? You just keep on asking questions until hopefully you tease out who they are and what they are, and that will create." the collaboration, mm -hmm. depending on how well you pose those questions, how patient you are listening to the answers. And, you know, that's the way to do it. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. And I think you're framing the end goal is collaboration, yeah. not some image of yourself in, in their eyes. And you're trying to get to that sense of uh, collaboration. We are the most effective, the most effective way. And yeah, it sounds like just doing something together and just showing them that kind of they're in control. Is that kind of what you're doing with with questions? Is it that they're in control, or you're just you're just making sure that the focus is clearly on them as the priority? I think the latter. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not about um, it's not about control. It's yeah, I mean, different models see it differently. Uh, but I wanted to go back to what you were just talking mm, about, yeah. about vulnerability. So with vulnerability, well, there is a theory that says that the real therapy doesn't begin until you see your therapist's shortcoming and, and, and indeed even challenge him or her about mm. them. Maybe they're a minute late to start the session, a minute early to start the session. Maybe you catch them yawning or something, whatever it is, or, you, or they forget the name of your dead mother, whatever it may be. Um, 
there is a school that says that that in the moment that you challenge you dare to challenge and you talked about the pedestal the the minute you're brave enough to challenge the pedestal to take away the pedestal the very pedestal you put your therapist on yeah. realize <laughs> you, know, you owe him a favor and you just go you know what i'm taking this away um i need you to be accountable and you challenge them and there is a school that says that, that that's when the real therapy begins with the the outdoor stuff how do you run those kind of sessions you're just meeting them at their home and you're just you're just there ready to go ready to go to go for a run or how does it work no i mean in their home in london they, <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay okay minutes just to get down the lift no we meet we meet in hyde park or typically hyde park or some other park sometimes at a pre-assigned place and uh, we head off from there i start those sessions with uh, something called um, the grounding process, something I developed. It's not really unique to me, but it's just a short sort, sort, short sort of mindfulness exercise that is completely optional, um, but it helps to ground people into uh, the moment and gives them an opportunity to focus on what they want to get out of that session. With these exercises, how much are you prepared to go down the kind of the deeper metaphysical exploration path? And maybe some people are interested in that, but is that something that you see having utility in this, or is it just a lot of effort for people to really understand what's going on in the human mind? And it's possibly yeah. easier for them just to become more familiar with a, a few aspects and principles of their own experience. You know, you should have your own TV show. You ask great questions, <laughs> a lot of podcasts, but I don't know. How, you seem to know a lot about what's relevant in this space. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a really tricky one, too. Uh, we call it psych education in, in, in the business where you can go into, for instance, as I mentioned, I'm an existential psychotherapist, so I can get into all the philosophy of, of Sartre and Kierkegaard and but how useful is that? And how much talking should I be doing in any one session? How much do I want people to end up in their mind rather than down in their heart? A lot of people prefer to stay up here. And let's talk mm. at length about what Kierkegaard really meant. Um, you know, and, and, and that's a great way to leave the session feeling strong. It's like, oh, I've been educated and, and this guy sees and hears me and understands me and we're really clever together, but we're not really there to be clever. We're not really there to make sense of things. We're really there to shift emotional states. We're there to make sense of feelings, not ideas. So mm. in as far as, an, uh, 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 as explaining an idea might shift a feeling, then it's useful. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it, when you were describing that, it started to sound a little bit more like CBT to me, but it's the, the distinction is that you're relying on the person's subjective experience rather than these kind of models about cause and effect. Is, is that right? Am I, am I kind of getting that distinction closer? It, it's yeah, one I'm still still feeling new to me. Well, even even in, even in CBT, strictly behavioral, when Bob says, "Oh, when I, you know, I always end up alone at parties," um, the reason Bob ends up alone in parties is not just because he walks through the door, smiles at everybody, and then walks into a corner and grabs a drink and doesn't move from there. Mm -hmm. That's what Bob thinks parties 
that's those are Bob's decisions. That's what Bob decided for himself was the right way to be. So he's still in a subjective state. You could argue everything is subjective. Um, it's just about where you where you want to put the uh, uh, the focus. I suppose, yeah. And if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It is. It's shifting the focus. Um, so for you, the focus is yeah very much on what is the current person's mental state and actually getting the truth about what their current mental state is and then exploring ways that they might be able to notice changes in their mental state and um, upon their feedback you would then explore a certain um, to develop a tool to kind of achieve that change in mental state is that right yes i think that's fair to say i think that there in cbt and i'm not a cbt therapist but I think it's fair to say that as you're mapping out their behavior, um, it's really important to understand the emotional um, journey that goes on during that, because that's really what's driving most of the behavior. So you want to know, what were you feeling? What happens when you do this? What's a change in feeling? And, and, and then, as you're pointing out, when you explore changing of behaviors, when we look for that exit, and I send you to a party on Friday and you try this out, did you feel happier? Did you feel less happy? Did, did it feel risky? What did it feel like? The feelings, people come into therapy really all about feelings. And it's, that's really what, that's really where you want to try and affect change. What kind of interactions do you have with someone who's, they know that they're struggling in some way. So they do know they have feelings, but they're not familiar with where to look or how they know they have feelings and how, how do you get through that at the, the start of a session because you mentioned that you might do some kind of mental or sounds like almost mindfulness type exercise at the start but there, there's a long way to go for someone who is not that familiar with the internal space got another great question there gene um i would say uh I would say that's one of the biggest challenges. Um, I'd say it was a challenge in my therapy too. I was much happier mm. talking, analyzing, noticing, uh, reflecting, anything. I could do anything. I could talk about myself at length as long as I didn't have to feel the things that I was talking about. And it can hmm. be a real challenge to get people to sit there with the feeling. And, and I believe just me and the kind, the kind of therapy that I do and the books that I read, that if you can get a person to just stop for a moment and just and just say, what are you feeling? It can feel very threatening as well, by the way. But just say, look, I hear you talking about this, but are you feeling it? What are you feeling right now? Where are you feeling it? Do you have a feeling? Where in your body would it be located? Is it hot, cold? You try to make it as real as you can, mm -hmm. and you try to give them space. And it can be absolutely terrifying because there's uh, – you know, one of the major defenses that we have along with projection and all the ones that you will know, um, rationalization and the, the many, many, many ones that Sigmund's daughter came up with is, um, uh, uh, what are we talking about here? Now I've lost my, my train of thought. Um, oh, yes, intellectualization. Hmm. A lot of people overcome by the place and situation that they're in emotionally will go up into the head they'll start to analyze they'll start watching the news a lot or 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 reading books about their situation and turning it into some sort of interesting um 
you know, analysis rather than anything, rather than just sitting there with the feeling. And of course, as you start to betray yourself, start to distance yourself from your feelings and go up into your head, um, whether it's through going to your head or using alcohol, drugs, sex, shopping, any every time you try to step away from what you're feeling, um, if that becomes a pattern of behavior in the end, the if the horror of what you left behind just grows and grows and grows in a really anxious way. It's just like, well, now I can't, I can't bear to feel anything. <laughs> I can't even stand the thought of, you know, 10 minutes or 10 seconds of my own sadness feels overwhelming. And does that realization often happen when you're in the, in the presence of, of the client, they realize that that's actually how they um, are coping with some things Did the intellectualization specifically, as opposed to, Drug, sex, and alcohol. Something that you you need to very cleverly make them think that they've discovered. <laughs> Inception. <laughs> Steer the conversation towards it with a number of questions. You're always asking questions, you know, and you're not steering people. You're not genuinely steering people because if I steer people, I'm steering them to my idea of who they are. Mm. Questions should reveal to me who they are, not reveal to them who I think they are, because otherwise that's just pure projection. That's my narrative. It's going to be born out of my drama, my stories, my fears of the past, present, future. Mm. So no, I'm asking questions. I'm seeing each time I ask a question, we're at a crossroads and then I follow you down there. But mm -hmm. if I have a hunch, um, you know, you, you are probably going to confirm my hunch. Um, but hopefully I hold that hunch lightly enough in my hand that it doesn't become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I can imagine there are a number of times where you, you, you're definitely letting control over to the, the client to take you in a, a certain direction as they explore. And I can imagine you, you might feel that this is probably not the way to go, but it is the way to go because they're trying to learn. And even if it's a dead end, that process of becoming a little bit more familiar with what's actually true in their head and what's not true in their head is is the hardest thing especially for someone who's struggling a lot i think you tend to come up with a lot of things in your head that are, are not actually what you're experiencing yeah uh, so so we have something called holding the frame the frame is everything you see right here in film language the mise-en-scene everything that's in that when you go into your therapist's office in traditional therapy your therapist never changes anything not a not a book not a whisper of anything mm. um, and in that way you are an anchor you're the one true thing the one thing that stays steady as they try out different stories feel feel how there's different stories those confusing possibilities of who they are and who they're not and hopefully they do it in a place that feels grounded to them of course, having said that, as you know, I then take people out into the, or not then, I take other people out into the park where it's a constantly changing landscape. Mm. So I don't necessarily uh, believe in that, but I tell you what, the people that I do see in my office, I do not change things around. Um, and I don't change things around to people I take in the park. We go to the same park, we roughly run the mm. same route, run the same amount of time. Yes, there might be some different people there or something, but yeah, in answer to the point you're making, yeah, it's incredibly important to offer. It. 
Can you imagine, I don't know if you've been in therapy yourself, but imagine what it's like to day after day or, or weekly open up your heart, open up your mind, open up and just say, tell me, please, can you tell me what if, what if everything that I've told you is true, to give over your power to somebody like that? Absolutely terrifying. So <clears throat> it's a lot of trust people give you, and, and, and it's important that you can hold the line really important you hold the line that's why the wounded healer is a, is a good man mm. uh, troubles to the guy that's been through a lot of therapy the guy is well trained he knows what's important um he doesn't go too wacko mm -hmm. yeah and i guess that means that there's no talk of time frames from the start we just make progresses on at whatever rate yeah. we can and we arrive whenever we arrive yeah um, back to the the running or the the outdoor stuff. Typically, is there a pattern that you see in those first few sessions with the client as they become more familiar with this slightly different way of doing therapy? And does that kind of plateau where each each session you're making a bit of progress, or what what levers do you have to pull there? Oh, there's a there's a lot in there to unpack. Um, I, you know, every 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 session is unique. Every client is unique. Um, you want to keep it that way. I I I don't have levers to pull. I don't have expectations. I have nothing. I'm trying to show up. I'm trying to be in the here and now. I'm trying to be as present as I can be with you and what you're feeling and. As much of myself, not all of myself, and all of the world behind, because because I am here. It's important I'm here, and the world is here, and, and it provides a context for the stories that you're telling, an important context, a context that will remain in place most likely tomorrow. There will still be a world. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's a it's a it's a softer it's a softer approach than I think the one that you're imagining. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just let it flow each time, yeah. and and see see where they take things. But you want to mod. The thing is that you want a lot of therapy is about modeling for your client how to be in the world. So it's important that I model just being okay with who I am, where I am, who you are, how you are. You know, if I come in there and I'm all uptight, it's hard for you to feel okay about your own uptightness in a way. You know, hopefully I've 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 done enough work. I'm looking after myself. I'm I'm keeping what you know. If 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 you know if my whole family uh, uh, pass away in some terrible accident, then then I then I don't I stop working as a therapist. If I'm not qualified to be a therapist at that time, then I stop for a while mm -hmm. until I am. Um, it's really important you take your work seriously, and and part of that is 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 you have to be congruent with with who you really are you know you can't fake it so you can't pretend to be cleverer than you are you can't pretend to be kinder than you are mm. um you can't you really you're you do your best work when you show up who as you are but you show up as the best available version not yeah. every day but most of the time yeah i think that's a really interesting point to drill down into because when you say modeling i think people imagine being the best possible human that they could be. So even being late is something to avoid and almost something to 
either downplay or to be overly apologetic, you know, do different people deal with that in, in different ways in an attempt to attain that, that kind of model uh, image oh. that they were going for. Whereas that's not what you mean by model. Can you explain what you mean by model? Well, I mean, I mean that I should present in, 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 in the person centered model, um, we are a kind of therapy. We are, it's very much, it's very important that we, we're, we're essentially modeling a kind of relationship between us that you can then have with yourself. So I need to bring that. I need to bring unconditional positive regard. I need to come from a place where I think that you're a good person or a good enough person, that you're not a malicious person, that you're, uh, and that neither am I. Um, uh, that we don't exploit each other, that that's not part of what we're there for. We believe in, in the nobility or, or, or the quality of, 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 our, of our exchanges. Uh, so, so that's what I mean by modeling, but you're absolutely right. There are a lot of clients who, who will say funny things like, uh, oh, I, am I one of your best clients? Or uh, today I wasn't a very good client, was I? Or, yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. It's interesting. And then you're working through goodness. Goodness knows what you're working through there. And, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. you make light of it and, and, and sometimes you make note of it and, um, and then you reflect it back when it feels uh, appropriate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're kind of, you're modeling humanistic qualities. You're modeling these more subjective uh, attributes as opposed to modeling some of the more, I guess, measurable qualities that society often holds in, in high regard. And uh, that's obviously, you're finding that effective but at some point, I'm hoping the lesson spills over into the realization that that's probably all that mattered. Do you get there with, with clients when they realize that the, the world in their head is the world? Do I get there with clients? <laughs> Do I get there with clients? I mean, I don't know. You have to ask my clients. Yeah, they that's right. There, there is not a there, there is seldom a light bulb moment where they turn around to me and say, "Oh God, I realize this is." I think most people do exactly. Most people do realize um, on some level that most of the shit that's going on in the world is going on in their head. Most of the paranoia, most of the fear, most most of it's coming from them. People with anxiety, their problem is not understanding the source of it and, or, or the author of it. Their problem is getting the author to shut the hell up. Mm -hmm. um, so, so no, it's, it's less about that. I think. Mm. Um, so again, just trying to better tease out this difference between these different types of therapy in what you do, there seems to be more of a focus on the author part of what's happening as opposed to kind of a stimulus and response yeah. um, intervention of, of CBT, right? Yeah, in, in some ways it's, it's a more fundamental task, but it's, it's, a harder, it's a harder task to grapple with, maybe because it's a harder task to even describe. I'm, 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 I'm pushing that point too hard. It, it, it is an element of mm. existential okay. psychotherapy. Existential psychotherapy really looks, it comes from a point of looking at... Um, uh, 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 the choices you make in your life and understanding of, of, of life as a totality um, of the different sectors of your life 
or spheres of your life or whatever you want to use. The, the authorship piece, the subjective piece, is, is part of it, but it's, it's, certainly not, it's certainly not the light bulb part. You, you hold it lightly and, and you work from that place. Uh, I think that's more how it works. Yeah, no, I think it's possibly also, I'm just quite interested in that distinction because it's a, it's a new one. It's a new one for me. Yeah, it's a foundation, not a tool. Mm. I think it was worth both. Yeah. It, 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 it underpins the work, but at no point does anybody need to know that or talk about mm. it. Perhaps it's useful. Cool, cool. Uh, where do you hope to, to take this, this work? Is there more people who are becoming interested in these, that this style of um, developing the, that relationship? And uh, is there hopes to teach more people? Or yeah, what, what do you see yourself doing moving forward? Well, I've thought about it. I've, I've, I've I, you know, when I first set it up, uh, as, as I mentioned, I, I, I wrote a book uh, that's about mindfulness and mindful running and DRT and, and, and teaches you how you can, there are courses in there for conditions, anxiety, anger, and depression, et cetera. So that's part of it, spreading the word um, in that sense. Um, I have an app as well that's doing the same. Uh, it's early days for the app. I'm very excited about that. I hope that with that app, I can share running therapy and the effect of, the effectiveness of running with your problems and exploring your problems. Um, I hope that I can spread that around the world. So I think those are, I did think about training other therapists. I've got a long list of therapists that want to be trained. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I haven't got around to that. Yeah. Does it feel a little bit like you're, a pioneer in some sense that people are looking up to you, but you're not looking up to anyone and you've, you found yourself in this position where somehow you're the authority on something you maybe don't even define very. Um, not only that, tightly. but I also know that I also know that when I'm out with other runners and I tell them what I do, they go, they understand it immediately. They're like, well, mm. of course running is brilliant for you. Of course, talking is real. Of course it's empowering. Of course it's this, of course it's that. Yeah. Um, Running is my therapy, so forth. Um, but they're runners. They're self-selecting. They're already the people. They're already in the pen. It's the rest of the people. And for them, it's still a fairly radical idea. So, you know, I know I'm a bit of a first mover in all of this, um, certainly in the kind of way that I do it, uh, I am. And uh, I think the world is catching up quickly. I think we're really understanding that the, the body-mind split, that uh, Cartesian split is, is a load mm -hmm. of nonsense can't really separate out one from the other. You can only separate out, separate it out intellectually, but yeah. that terribly overused uh, expression, the lived experience, uh, your lived experience is very much not one of separation. So um, mm -hmm. it is my belief that uh, the body, the body informs the mind, the mind informs the body, um, movement is medicine, all that good stuff. It, the reason it worked, movement wouldn't work on your mind if your mind wasn't connected to your body, would it? You would just, <laughs> and your mind wouldn't move at all. So to su suggest there's a split there uh, is, is nonsense, in my humble opinion. Turning over 500 years of, of, uh, of Cartesian uh, philosophy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think there's some some really good points, and maybe you don't even need to make that point, and you just have to sh show someone the door, and as they begin to find, explore their own mind, and see what works and the dynamics within, then I don't know if you even need to 
model it in a way that we can have like we can have an intellectual conversation about it if you and i find it interesting but the client doesn't necessarily need to understand like the bigger philosophical implications of anything just to have some some kind of sense of which direction to go in given their emotional state yeah yeah absolutely cool well thank you for your time william pleasure pleasure yeah. i've really enjoyed it yeah yeah there's a lot a lot more in this space and it's good to see um therapy becoming i think hopefully more more normalized um it's not just something for people with serious problems but there's all these little things we can we can work towards and the more the line blurs between therapy and just maintaining good mental health i think uh, the better and great to hear that that running can be something um, so useful in in physically and mentally and wherever they blur well so. i don't need to persuade you of that and um yeah 100 agree with your ideas um shall i just mention um my uh, app and book and yes please yeah so the book uh, in in the uk is called uh, run for your life in america um running with mindfulness it's in 14 countries i don't know what it is in new zealand but it'll be there somewhere um uh, my app is also called dynamic running therapy uh, my website is dynamicrunningtherapy.com um i'm at pullen therapy on twitter um i'm uh, william pullen uh on um instagram and i'm william pullen at hotmail dot com for anybody who wants to email me with any questions i'm happy to hear from people great and i'll have those links in in the post along with the podcast fantastic cool thank you for your time william my pleasure it's uh, it's been fun have a great day if you're enjoying the perfect flow podcast and want more value from it in the future there are some ways you can support it the first is to rate or leave a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or other platforms where it's available. The second is to share this podcast or specific episodes on social media or with friends. The third is to get involved more directly through the Perfect Flow page on Facebook, where I'm trying to construct a more interactive community. I want Perfect Flow to belong to the listeners, and if you tell me what topics you're most interested in, or even suggest specific guests, I'll do my best to make it happen. This is your opportunity to be part of something that answers your questions and adds value to your life. Another good reason to follow Perfect Flow on Facebook is that I post links to episodes, blog posts, and anything I find useful to this page. It's a great way to follow my training, racing, and learning. Another great way to stay engaged is to subscribe to genebeverage.nz. This way you will get podcasts and blogs emailed to you, avoiding the clutter of Facebook. I don't know where this project will take us, but the reception so far has been positive. Who knows where we might be in a few years.